doesn't matter if you grew up in the church or have been around the church for a long time or maybe you're brand new to the church and to the things of God. You are familiar with the words of the song, Amazing Grace. People are without any kind of tie to the church and Christianity. People are still familiar with those words. They speak to us at a, a level unlike really any other song. They're requested often in times of trouble. They are sung, hummed, and whistled by a number of different people. Those words really mean a lot to people. But I don't know if you're familiar with the background of that song. A fellow named John Newton actually wrote it. And I want you to listen to just some of the details of how it came to be. I took this right off of the hymnology website. That's where this came from. And I understand that some of the math may be wrong. Frank Vitopka came out and told me that after first service, but I have not reworked it to know, so don't get hung up on that. But listen to this. It was December 1772 in Olney, England. At the age of 47, John Newton began the writing of a hymn that would grow increasingly more popular over the next 351 years. In his song, Amazing Grace, Newton writes about a grace that is immense. He writes about amazing grace, one that saved him out of his wretchedness. By looking within the hymn, Amazing Grace, one is able to understand a little bit about Newton's personal conversion. Although every person's conversion story is unique, there's something about this hymn that remains relatable to Christians everywhere. Newton discusses where he was when he found God, or rather, when God found him. He was a wretch. He was lost. He was blind in sin. Newton grew up with both his mother and father. However, his mother died while his father was away at sea. Newton's father remarried and the couple had another child. Following in his father's footsteps, Newton began his life's career by searching throughout the African coast for slaves to capture and eventually to sell for profit. On one journey, Newton and his crew encountered a storm that swept some of his men overboard and left others with the likelihood of drowning. With both hands fastened onto the wheel of the boat, Newton cried out to God saying, Lord, have mercy on us. After 11 hours of steering, the remainder of the crew found safety with the calming of the storm. From then on, Newton dated March 21st as a day set aside for a time of humiliation, prayer, and praise. Upon arriving safely home, Newton did not venture out to seek more slaves. Instead, he began to learn Hebrew and Greek. He occasionally accepted requests to speak about his conversion in front of various congregations. Newton was eventually ordained and began to lead his own church. God changed him from a man who was an advocate for the slave trade to a man actively working towards abolishing it. Newton's literary work against the slave trade encouraged abolitionist William Wilberforce to continue his legal fight against slavery in England. In later years, Newton began to lose his memory. Although his thoughts were limited, Newton said he could remember two things that I am a great sinner, and that Christ is a great Savior. With this conviction of newly found life that he found only in Christ, Newton passed from his earthly life in 1807 at the age of 82. Newton did live long enough to see the signing of the act for the abolition of the slave trade. Interesting to hear the history, but I want you to listen again to the familiar words. 
Denise Knockenberg is going to sing this as Beth Burns accompanies her. Interesting what that song does to the heart of people. In both services, we saw the same thing. Some folks had their phone up. They were recording that as Denise was singing while other people were simply wiping tears off of their cheeks. That song touches people. Incredibly interesting to me that we projected the words to the song and no one sang with her. You just listened. The song touches people. It means something to people. Back in the day when we would sing that song in church, at least it was this way at Wesleyan Christian Church in Wichita, Kansas and to other places, when we had song leaders, not worship leaders, and we sang out of hymnals, not off of screens, the song leader would stand in front of the church and he'd tell everybody to open their hymnal to a certain page where the, the song Amazing Grace was found. And then they would always say this, I don't know why, but they would always say this, we're going to sing the first and the third verses and the chorus. I don't know why we always left out the second verse, but we always left out the second verse. We're going to sing verse one and three and everyone join in with us. What was wrong with verse number two? 
Apparently, there's a psychology to verse number two that song leaders and everyone else just want to skip right over. Do you remember verse two? It was up on the screen just a minute ago. Do you remember what it looked like? Here it is. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. Twas grace has brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Maybe there's things in that that we just don't like to think about. Dangers, toils, and snares. Maybe the psychology of it is such that 300 years after the writing of the song, we think the dangers are different and we can't relate to it. Maybe it's the leading us home part that causes us not to want to sing it. But we leave this verse out. We shouldn't. There is great teaching in it about what Newton would refer to as amazing grace and what we know as amazing grace. There's such great teaching in it that Peter would actually write about it at the end of his first letter. Why don't you join me there? First Peter chapter 1. And then we're going to move right into 2 Peter. Love how he ends this book and I love how he starts the second one. As we're moving one to the other, pay close attention to how he seamlessly does this as he closes out one letter and starts the next, even though they are separated by a significant period of time. It is as if he just continues his strain of thought. It is like he never misses a beat. That is not true of all of the different letters that we see in Scripture. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John each have a distinct ending and a distinct beginning. 1st and 2nd Corinthians, though there is a cohesiveness between them, there is still a big difference between how the first one ends and the second one begins. But 1st and 2nd Peter just flow right together. Watch how that happens. We're going to pick up in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, verse 10. The apostle writes, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, that's Silas, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. When he mentions Mark, that's John Mark, and when he calls him his son, he is his son in the faith. John Mark, though he would have abandoned Paul at one point, and Paul nearly abandoned him, found his way into a relationship with Peter. John Mark would become the author of the Gospel of Mark, but it was actually Peter's Gospel as told to John Mark. Mark just wrote it down. So Peter speaks of him in his letter. Verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And then moving on into 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Simeon, or Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. You could take those verses, put them together, and write in the margin of your Bible or over the top of them these words, amazing grace. That's what he's talking about, amazing grace. But he is speaking about it in ways that we often miss. 
And this morning, I want to show you a depth of grace, and possibly more than one, that maybe you have never paid attention to. To start the whole process, we're going to take Newton's song, the second verse of it, and just look at three things that he calls out, dangers, toils, and snares. And I'll show you how Scripture speaks about the grace of God and Peter's understanding of each of those, and hopefully along the way, it'll open your eyes to how God has poured out that same grace in your life. Let's take dangers first. John Newton, when he wrote that verse, put it in that popular song, knew what he was talking about. You already heard a little bit of that and what we read from the hymnology website, but here's something else that maybe you didn't know about his life that shows how God intervened in the midst of dangers. Here you go. At a shooting party, Newton almost killed himself by accidentally firing his shotgun while scrambling up a bank. The round singed the edge of his cap, missing his head by a couple of inches. Once again, he should have died, and God intervened. There was this amazing grace that sustained his life. Oh, there are other examples of that too, like this. During a severe storm, he was sent below deck while the man who took his place was washed overboard. Appears that the Lord had something in mind for John Newton. And in the midst of dangers, he intervened. However, in the process of that, he left a gigantic question mark for all of us to wrestle through. Why did God intervene in this particular case and save Newton's life, but that cost someone else their life? That's one of those questions that we may not get an answer to this side of heaven. As much as we try and as much as we work at it, we may just have to trust that passage of Scripture that Scott read a few minutes ago from the book of Isaiah. God's ways are higher than our ways and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts and we have to trust that. That is a faith moment. But no matter what the case is, in this particular situation, in the face of dangers... God intervened in John Newton's life. He saved him. He spared him because he had a purpose for him. He had something for him to accomplish. Peter knew all about that. He knew about dangers and how God intervenes. He experienced it himself. Keep your finger there in, in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, but join me in Acts chapter 5. I want to show you a couple of different ways that God intervened in Peter's life that have similarities, but both are amazing. We're going to start in verse 17 of chapter 5. Listen to this. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So here they were in the midst of danger. They had been arrested. They were told to stop preaching. God intervenes by sending an angel to get them out of prison. And that very angel says, No, go back and do what got you here in the first place. And they did. They did. God intervened with this grace because he had a purpose. He saved them, spared them out of prison because he had a purpose. That's not the only time that we see that. We can go to Acts chapter 12 
and see the exact same thing with a few more details. This is Acts 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Now follow just a little bit of context. On the night before, by all appearances, Peter would lose his life to Herod, same way James had. On the very night before that was supposed to happen, Peter was being guarded, and I don't mean just a little bit. There were guards at the doors. He was sleeping between two guards. He was chained up, and he knew what was about to happen. It was no secret. But interestingly enough, the Bible is about to tell us he was sound asleep. Can you imagine? Can you imagine on the last night that you're going to be alive and you know it? You're sound asleep. He is sound asleep. And here's how we know that. Verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. Now, that's miraculous, no question about it, but it's not uncommon in the telling of an angel appearing. He showed up in the cell because he's not bound by physics, time, or space, and a bright light was shining. That's pretty normal biblically. But what happens next is extraordinary. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands and the angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. <laughs> Aren't those cool details in the Bible? So Peter is so sound asleep, locked up between these guards on the night before, ostensibly he is about to die, but he is sound asleep. Are you following me? He is sound asleep, so deep in sleep that when the angel showed up and the bright light was illuminating the entire cell, he slept through it. He slept through it until the angel had to kick him, nudge him, hit him, whatever the case is, and say, wake up. I can imagine the angel standing over Peter like, are you joking me? <laughs> really? Here I am. You're sleeping. What in the world? So he hits him, kicks him, nudges him, and then he has to walk him through step by step what to do. Peter, wake up. Wake up. Peter's yawning, stretching, and, and the angel has to say, would you get up and get dressed? So he gets up, gets dressed, and he said, now follow me. We're going to walk out of here. And they walk out of there, and he said, now go back to preaching. And the whole time, Peter is, is wiping the crusty stuff out of his eyes to the point that the Bible would tell us he didn't know if he was actually experiencing this or it was a vision or a dream. What in the world? What in the world? And Peter went back to preaching. He went back to preaching. In the face of dangers, when God rescued him and poured out this amazing grace on him to spare his life, Peter just went back to preaching. He didn't waste it. He did not waste it. 
If you were to look at your own life, you could look backwards at periods of danger and more than likely see how God spared you in the midst of that. Some of you are already just nodding with me like, yeah, I've experienced that. You can see how God spared your life. Know this, He does not do that casually. It's for a purpose. It's for a purpose. Don't waste it. Whatever you do, don't waste it. Amazing grace was poured out on you to spare your life in the face of dangers. Don't waste it. That's a grace. Well, Newton would go on to talk about some other levels of that, like toils. By all appearances, toils simply means doing everyday life. I'm just just living my life. And then all of a sudden, amazing grace gets poured out on me in the midst of my everyday living. Here's an example from Newton's life. While planning to be on a river trip in Africa, the captain pulled him from that trip. That boat sank. And once again, the man that replaced him drowned. He drowned. So here he is, just signed up, ready to go to work, doing what he's supposed to do, and God pulls him from that trip. You know at some point he was like, well, how come I'm not going on that? And then in hindsight, he sees that boat go down. God intervened in the midst of toils, everyday living, just normal life. Well, Peter knew about that. He experienced the same thing. This is in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenaeus and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now again, the context of that. In the early days of the church, after Peter had preached at Pentecost and thousands of people became believers, many of them had come from distant lands to Jerusalem and they heard the message of the gospel and they stayed there. They didn't go home, they stayed there. They stayed there without a place to live, without a job, without food or any ability to take care of themselves. And the disciples said, we got you covered. We'll find you a place to live, we'll feed you, and we'll hopefully find you a job. So they set about the course of that. And it became a daunting task, feeding thousands of people every day. Didn't take very long, just a few short months into that, before people started grumbling and complaining. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? So what the the grumbling really was is you had these Greek Jewish widows who were looking at the Jewish-born, Hebrew-speaking, Jewish-born widows, and the Greek speakers were saying that the Hebrew speakers were getting more food than they were. And that isn't right. And the apostles got together for the first organized church board meeting, at which time they said, ha, 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 what are we going to do? And they didn't know what to, by the way, that's in the original languages, it's just, it's hard to find. They didn't know what to do because nobody had ever done it before. 
They couldn't pull a book off their shelf or Google what to do when the the Hebraic Jews were getting more food than the Grecian Jews. What are we supposed to do? How did somebody else handle it? There was no pattern. So they prayed about it. And God intervened in the midst of their toils and gave them a grace that is still used today. He granted to them a pattern of spiritual giftedness in the body of Christ that is still used today in the midst of their toils. They got to the end of themselves and they didn't know what to do and God intervened with amazing grace. In the midst of their toils, when they got to the end of themselves, God intervened with amazing grace. He does the same thing for us. In the midst of everyday life, when you get to the end of yourself and you have nothing left, but you know there's still more work to be done, but you don't know what to do, that is the place of amazing grace. And God intervenes as He guides, directs, and gives you great wisdom, or sometimes keeps you off the boat that's going down. That's God's intervention in toils as we do life. Peter knew it. John Newton knew it. Both of them wrote about it. But what about these snares? Snares are kind of interesting things. The snares are simply the traps that the devil uses to catch us. They're common and they're familiar. Peter had just written about them in the book of 1 Peter. You might have remembered that from just a few weeks ago. Where he says in verse 8 of chapter 5, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We have an enemy that's setting traps, snares to catch us. And listen to me, listen to me. They're not unknown to you. He uses the familiar ones and he uses them effectively. He did in John Newton's life. Take a look at this. Newton once tried to go overboard and retrieve his fallen hat. He was so intoxicated at the time that he nearly drowned. Even sober, he couldn't swim. Someone grabbed him and pulled him back. So Newton's out to sea. The wind picks up, blows his hat overboard. And in this moment of brilliance, he jumps overboard to go rescue his own hat, forgetting that he can't swim. The reason that he forgot it, he was drunk. Snares. Snares. It was a familiar common path in Newton's life, and the enemy used it. He still does the same thing with us. He uses common, familiar paths to set traps to catch us. Peter knew that too. There is a part of his life that is often overlooked. It's recorded in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul writes these words. But when Cephas, that's Peter, But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all... If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now here's what happened. Peter was in Antioch and he was sitting with a bunch of Gentiles sharing a meal with them. That was something that happened because of Jesus. 
He was Jewish by birth, and before Jesus, he would have never done anything like that because Jews and Gentiles didn't associate with one another. But now that the kingdom of God was open, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles and the Samaritans alike, Peter was eating with them until a group of Jews showed up, and Peter looked and said, oh my, there's a bunch of the brothers. I better not do this. He picked up his plate, and he switched tables and went and sat with the Jews instead of eating with the Gentiles because he didn't want the Jews to see him eating with the Gentiles. And Paul said, hold it, hold it. Peter, you can't do that. Because Paul stood off to the side and he saw the other Jewish believers in Christ follow suit, including Barnabas. And others were led astray into it. So did you catch what he did? Man, this was bold. Paul got Peter up in front of everybody and he dressed him down. And God's grace was poured out on Peter through Paul to say stop what you're doing because you're harming the gospel and here was this familiar snare of pride and heritage and the two that were closely connected that caught Peter in a trap so Paul rescued him snatched him out of it he snatched him out of it which by the way the Bible tells us to do the same thing when we see a brother caught in sin snatch him out of that fire go get him snatch him out of that fire that's exactly what Paul did because Peter got caught in a snare. Newton got caught, almost took his life. Peter got caught, could have really hurt his ministry. It didn't. It didn't because of what Paul did. There is an amazing grace that gets poured out on us in some of the most unique of ways where God says, I will rescue you. That type of amazing grace is all around us. It really is. Peter has a term for it in the book of 1 Peter. Verse 10. And after, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. His term for this type of grace is the God of all grace. When most people think about grace, we look backwards to our life of sin and how God saved us from that. And that happened through His Son, Jesus Christ, and His death, burial, and resurrection. It's amazing in its own right. It is amazing. But that is backward-looking grace. And then sometimes we look forward into eternal life, connecting the two. Because of what God did for my past, my future is secure. And I get to move from this old way of life into a new eternity. So I look backwards and I look forward. But somehow in the midst of understanding grace, we forget the present. And there is still a grace given to us by the God of all grace for the present. For the present. And it is unique. It covers dangers, toils, snares, and all kinds of other things. As God pours out grace upon grace upon grace in our life. It is specific and it is personal. And all we have to do is lean into it. And when we do, we will receive what I refer to as upgraded grace. Now, if you receive the letter that I send out on Friday, you already have an idea of what I'm talking about, but I want to share with you what I wrote this last week, due in large part to the fact that I like it. 
It makes sense to me. So let me walk you through it again. This is my understanding of upgraded grace, or what I call upgraded grace. Someday I'm going to fly first class. The appeal is immense. Seats with enough room for a human being and leg room to boot. Armrest and foot rest, warm cookies, blankets and pillows. Boarding first and having someone call me sir. Sounds amazing. The only catch is, I don't want to pay for it. I want to be upgraded for free. So far, hasn't happened. It doesn't look like it ever will. I appear to be destined to fly coach all my life. You're probably tired of hearing me whine about something that really doesn't matter. Frankly, so am I. So let's talk about something that does. Let's talk about grace. Usually when people think of grace, they think of the grace that saves. That's good. It's that grace that sent Jesus to the cross. It's that grace that changes our lives. It should never be taken lightly or for granted. But my friend, if that's all you know of grace, it's like flying coach all your life and turning down repeated free upgrades. What many people don't realize about this wonderful gift from the Lord is that God offers free upgrades all the time, not just once or even occasionally. He offers it all the time. After all, Peter calls him the God of all grace. That's upgraded grace, and it is free. Just like the grace of salvation, upgraded grace is free offered to us by the God of all graces. He says, this is here for you if you want it. Let me just ask a question real quick. How many of you have flown coach, economy coach? How many of you have gotten to fly first class? Wow, that's quite a few show-offs. <clears throat> How many of you that have flown coach, economy class, if you were offered a free upgrade to first class, would turn it down? None of you. None of you. None of us would, and if you really believe that you would, all I'm going to say is, liar, you would accept the offer. Who would turn that down? But we do it with God all the time. God offers us these upgrades in grace, and we turn them down all the time. Why do we do that? Why are we so afraid of it? It makes no sense. Upgraded grace is for the present. It is for the present. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says about it. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. James, the half-brother of Jesus, would go on to say, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. To those that understand that we reach the end of ourselves and we need God to intervene miraculously in our lives and we lean into our relationship with Him, we'll experience this. We will experience this as God pours out grace upon grace in our lives in the present. It is in the present. But we have to lean into it. We need to lean into it. You might even remember, as we were reading in the book of 2 Peter, Peter himself would talk about it in the present. Listen to what he says, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It's not only extended to us, but it grows. It gets bigger. The more you come to know the Lord, the more you know about Him, the greater that grace and more amazing it is. It gets poured out on you. 
It is multiplied in the present. Wow. Wow. In the midst of dangers, toils, and snares, and all kinds of other ways, it is multiplied in the present. We have to lean into it. When we do, look at how Peter describes it. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. There's just four things that happen in upgraded grace. He will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. All four of those terms are about the growing of our walk with him or the growth of our walk with him. He will restore you from your old way of life into what he had intended for you. He will confirm, he will establish, and he will strengthen you. And you will grow stronger in him because of the grace, amazing grace, that is poured out on you. But you have to ask for it. You have to lean into it. If all you want is basic economy grace, and the economy being the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, if that's all you want... God, God says, okay, I'll grant that to you. And if all you want is heaven, God will grant that to you. But if you want a relationship with him that is covered by amazing grace, God says, I'll give it to you. I will give it to you. And here's just four things that will happen. The list can go on and on and on and on. But I want to tell you, I've experienced that amazing grace. I look forward to it every day. And I ask for it in a lot of different practical ways. And God has yet to not prove himself faithful as he grants it over and over and over. And it's amazing. It's amazing. By the way, I don't want to leave this without just acknowledging in verse 13. Peter says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. That always makes people wonder who in the world is that. That's a veiled reference. We talked when we started this. That's a veiled reference to the church in Rome. She who is at Babylon, that's the church in Rome. They were already under great persecution and so Peter didn't want them to have to come under anymore. So he used a veiled reference to talk about them. So hopefully that just clears that question up and doesn't leave you spinning out. A couple people after first service were kind of stuck on that. So I wanted to make sure that we cleared that up in this service. That's just Peter pouring out some amazing grace on the people that would read this letter so that their persecution would not grow. So they weren't called out by name. As you go on through the rest of this, you see God doing all kinds of different things. He says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Tucked away in the midst of all that teaching, he says, you can actually, through this gift of amazing grace, arrive at a place where you have a faith that is shared by the apostles. A faith just like theirs. Through amazing grace. Through amazing grace. It's this leveling thing in Christianity. Lean into it. And you may say, I really want to do that, Phil, but I, I'm not sure how. I'm glad you asked. I want to give you just a simple way to, to think about it and a simple little challenge that can get you moving in this. 
It involves three words, a piece of paper, a pen, and three words. All you have to do is this afternoon or tomorrow morning, before too much time passes and it isn't fresh for you, try this. Write these three words on a piece of paper. Dangers, toils, and snares. And then go back through your life and recount the times that you have been in danger and God has intervened. Miraculously shown up. You go back through that. Toils, your everyday life, you go back and you look at how God has miraculously shown up in the midst of everyday living. And then snares, you go back and you recount for yourself, write it down, there's power in writing it down. You look at the snares and the traps that have been set for you and how God has rescued you from them. And then continue on in your list, maybe adding other words, but by all means adding how God has shown up. And how that amazing grace has been poured out on you. And if there are areas that you know you need to lean into with him, then lean into them and watch what God does. But no matter what, no matter what, do not waste his amazing grace. Why don't you stand with us? We're going to pray together. Father in heaven, I hope it's not an insult to use basic economy to speak of what you did for us. Lord, that, uh, that changes everything for us. And in my mind, I think of it that way because it's something that, that you have offered to everyone, to those that will accept it. But Lord, then there's these upgrades. And you've offered those to all your children to those that will accept it. So I'm praying, Father, for both groups, those that need to accept that first step of grace that covers the past and ensures the future, and for those that are wrestling in the present that need some amazing grace. I pray they'll find it here today. I pray they'll respond to our invitation and they'll find it here today. Let me say that differently. I pray they'll respond to your invitation and find it here today. I'm asking that in Jesus' name. Amen.